We need to build societies that are not founded on the violent presuppositions of liberalism, but on the peace of Christ. To do this, we need to acquire a fresh, spiritual way of thinking beyond the boring categories that modernity has to offer. Catholic social teaching is this fresh way of thinking. I'm Jacob Fried Imam. From post-liberal thought, this is The Catholic Social Difference with Andrew Willard-Jones. All right, Andrew, we are now joined with Mark. Bye, Mark. Mark is here. Hey, guys. Because we are talking about the third modern ideology. The first that we discussed was liberalism. The second was socialism. And the third now is nationalism. Mark, you have uh, written a critique of nationalism. I guess all of us have written critiques of nationalism at this point. Um, so we're going to, we've brought you in to help us critique it at the end, but first we need to describe it. Mm. Andrew, do you want to start us off there? Yeah, so I think w- the way we've premised these, all these discussions on ideologies is that ideologies have sort of um, uh, axioms, right? And then they build their system off these. So, mm-hmm. so for liberalism, one of them was that the, the basic unit of society is the individual, mm-hmm. a sort of utility maximizing individual. The, the, for the socialist, the fundamental unit is the class that is in conflict with each other. And then for the nationalist, the fundamental unit is the nation, which is minimally helpful because the question then is, well, what, what is a nation, <laughs> right? What constitutes a nation? And that is, that is the question. So for a nationalist, the nation is a somewhat mysterious thing. It's like, it's the organic sort of communion of a people, the heart of a people. What makes a people a people is it's a nation. It's a nation. So it's not to be confused with a country like a state. So for most nationalists, they would assume or assert that it's very possible for a country or a state to rule over many nations or to not be a nation or or conversely for a nation not to have a state, like a stateless nation. Some people give the example of say, um, European Jews before the establishment of Israel as a nation without a state or, mm-hmm. or the Kurds today or something like that, mm-hmm. right? But the nation then is the unit of humanity that an individual finds his identity as a member of, but it isn't just any old unit of humanity. So we could say, like for example, well, what about like the family or the village or the city? Couldn't we say a, an individual is organically united to these units? And it's like, well, yeah, but none of that would be nationalism. Conversely, on the other side, we could say, what about humanity as a whole? That individuals are united with humanity as a whole, and that's how they find their significance and their meaning. Again, not nationalism. So nationalism is neither that small nor that big, right? It's somewhere in the middle. And that middle is historically formed. Part of nationalism is maintaining the myth of the timelessness or the fundamental sort of timelessness of nations. What makes nationalism distinct is not that there are groupings of human beings at the level of the nation, that's not it. It's that that's the primary grouping is what makes nationalism nationalism, mm-hmm. right? So for example, we in the Middle Ages, we might say we could very easily imagine a, a guy who's who would say, if you asked him who he was, he would say, I'm a Christian. Then he would say, I'm a member of the Smith family. Then he might say, I live in this certain village, Saint-Denis or something. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere along the line, he goes, oh, and I'm also a Frenchman, right? Like he, like, so Frenchman is there. But there's these all these other sort of perhaps d- different ordering of it. And then in modernity, then once you have the, 
for the formation of nationalism, you would he might say, I'm a Frenchman. Part of that is I live in this town, which is within France. I'm a member of a family which has a deep history supporting France. And then French people are Christians, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm a Christian too, because that's part of our, our glory is our, is our Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So na- the nation becomes the primary identification. It doesn't even have to eliminate those other ones, it just has to subordinate them. That's the, that's the sort of key, the key to it. This develops historically in the early modern period, in the formation of, of the states of Europe. So why is it that a nation is the size that it is roughly, right? Well, it's like, well, it's roughly the size of France, Spain, and, and England, who are the guys who, who built this, right? <laughs> okay, so it's, it's, sm- it's bigger than a city. It's smaller than, than the Holy Roman Empire. Why? <laughs> right? Because, well, that's what France was. In order for the states that were being built to have the power, the maximization of their power, there's two things that have to happen. So we'll stick with France because it's what mm-hmm. I know the best. Um, you have to, one, one, on one level, homogenize the internal. So you have to reduce the power and autonomy of any sort of internal social uh, organization. Um, so you have to subordinate the cities and the villages and the families to the centralized. And then on the other side, you have to eliminate the any sort of accountability or subjugation that the national has to anything international or larger. Mm-hmm. So you have to extract yourself out of any sort of sort of imperial thing. You have to extract yourself out of any sort of subordination to the Catholic Church, for example. Mm-hmm. So in France, you have even before the revolution, you have the the attempt to homogenize the regions and the provinces to the center, to Paris, under the absolutist monarchs, while at the same time the formation of Gallican Catholic theory, which was basically a form of national Catholicism, mm-hmm. right? A separation from from the, the, the church as an international power. After the revolution, those things just become dramatically accelerated. So Napoleon's entire, of course, re- regime is the homogenization internally under a national identity animated by a nationalist ideology. And so basically the suppression of all regional distinctiveness and re- regional forms of government, regional dialects, regional customs to a, to a single um, legal system, a single linguistic system, a single cultural system, all pointing to the Parisian core, French core. And at the same time, the obvious divorce from any sort of international um, uh, accountability, including the Catholic Church, right? So the suppression of the Catholic Church. And then even when it becomes reinstituted, it being reinstituted as a subordinate and national enterprise. Like the Catholic Church is now allowed to function within the national law. So in order for this dynamic to work, nationalism among the the people has to be created and instilled. So the people have to come to believe themselves to be Frenchmen prior to anything else, which is the, the strength in Napoleon's armies. And then the strength of the armies that ultimately defeat Napoleon is they're copying him in this, right? So this is how it gets spread throughout Europe. Like Napoleon's grand army is, I mean, this is the first time you have a citizen army of, especially like an infantry citizen army of a massive scale, 850,000 people since the Roman Empire. Right. Right. And so we're talking about the consolidation of the resources, the, the consolidation and the deployment of the resources of a region um, on a massive scale that isn't can't be merely um, merely sort of administrative. It's, it's necessarily ideological. To develop yeah. the ideology, then it, it took 
this almost a, a propaganda, a, a self-identifying propaganda, and as well as actual dominance. Yeah, actual dominance, right? So it's yeah. both massive propaganda coupled with secret police mm-hmm. and the violent suppression of, of difference, diversity. Wow. I mean, in France, that's what happens. I mean, yeah, I mean, like you had the <clears throat> unification of the French language being right, imposed, imposed. education standardized, uh, the entire uh, country of France, the, the, the traditional ancient division of, of France into its provinces and counties and municipalities mm-hmm. just swept away and basically broken up by a grid system of, pro- of departments. Right. I mean, that kind of thing, the establishment of a universal law code, the establishment of a centralized taxing apparatus. We group it in the ideology, ideologies because it has certain characteristics that are, simil- that are similar to liberalism and socialism. And it's one of liberalism's socialism sort of opponents, but then becomes its ally, their allies. Mm-hmm. But it is different because it is more fundamentally romantic, right? So what is the connection between the individual and his nation? It's this sort of heroic emotional, romantic, like I am a member of this people and I mm-hmm. sacrifice for it. And it loves me and I love it. Right. There's a, that's that fraternal brotherhood aspect to it. And so it doesn't have the kind of rationalist universalist um, rigor that liberalism or socialism has. However, mm-hmm. there are ways of making nationalism ide- ideological like that. So there's the two main forms that you get in the 19th century is one of them posits the nation as the fundamental unit of humanity that is given by God. So God creates us as nations and that the violence we see in the world is because we are not living as nations. So violence is a product of either imperial situations where one nation is dominating other nations, or it's a product of the division of nations into smaller units. So instead of being a nation, they're divided up into a bunch of little cities or something and they're warring with each other. And the solution to the violence then is to the establishment of a world of nations, right? There, that's one version and it becomes ideological, right? You can see how mm. any problem you encounter, mm-hmm. you can you can solve within that. Then the, the other form of nationalism that develops in the 19th century, which is more belligerent or sort of violent is the same starting point that we're divided up into nations, but these nations are fundamentally at war or competition with each other. And so what, what peace is achieved is achieved through victory. The, what the na- what you want your nation to be is stronger than every other nation to conquer the other nations and to become the masters over the slave nations, basically, hmm. right? And that this is good because it takes on a sort of Darwinian form because the strong survive and the weak are destroyed, right? And here we get a, a, a sort of heroic conception of of the nation, right? Like um, an ancient sort of heroic. It, it, and there, I think, where nationalism becomes a, a a way for paganism to return. It's a form of paganism, hmm. and that what, what we get. This is why it culminates in the sort of pagan, racist insanity of of like the Nazis, for example, hmm. right? That kind of blood and soil paganism, where it's like there's some sort of power, some sort of spiritual power in the blood and soil, right? And you, as an individual, are submitting yourself and serving that power. Well, so this actually brings us back to one of our earlier podcasts where we we're talking about. God selecting the nation of Israel right. as being the one that would evangelize. And this the is rest. the defense that lots of nationalists give. It's like, look, you, you, you know, I'm telling you nationalism 
the nation is natural. The nation is the fundamental unit. Mm-hmm. Look at the Bible. Yeah. And also you find almost a belligerent, the belligerent form of, of nationalism where there clearly is a nation that is greater than the rest and is right. supposed to conquer the rest in, in a sense. I mean, you see that militarily with David as mm-hmm. the span, but certainly the ways in which the Israelites thought were supposed to be the ways in which the other nations did as they, as they attempted to live according to the natural law right through the mosaic law but here i mean i I think i would i think i would i would see what mark has to say here but it seems to me that we get into a similar situation as we did when we were talking about sacrifice and talking about kingship right start talking about nations absolutely yeah no i don't i mean i don't have a full-on biblical critique um but it seems to me that from what does appear in the bible that to say that God divides the world into nations is at very least simplistic. Um, that the first time you really have a discussion of that is in, in the story of the Tower of Babel. In the building of the Tower of Babel, there was this story that on the top of the tower was an idol. And the idol had a sword in its hand and the sword was raised um, to actually hurt God was the idea. Okay. Um, so they're very direct in this being an idolatrous act. And so when you talk about the nation as a remedial act of God, I think it does relate directly to kingship. Why? Mm-hmm. Because what's the threat when the Israelites ask for a king? Well, it's because it's an idolatrous king, right? It's an ask for someone that will let them escape from the rule of God and God's law and right. instead to have a king that rules like unto the other nations, right? So when God allows them a king, it is to fundamentally transform kingship so that it doesn't end up in idolatry, right? Right. Because God understands everywhere you have a king, eventually you have a God, a false God. So he says, all right, you're going to ask for a king, but I'm going to give you a king in such a way that you cannot construct a God. You won't be able to make a God out of him. And I think- Just like how he gives a a ceremonial regime, a a sacrifice regime and a temple regime Mm -hmm. that avoids idolatry because he, he is the God. Right. And that will be a great, great podcast. (laughs) <laughs> uh, i want to talk about this so bad but yeah. but in, with the nations okay so they're building a um a tower they're unifying as a people and yeah. in, in a common work so as to replace the need for god and in a way you can see that their work is in fact the fulfillment like they don't need to build a tower really high for this to work the very fact that they're unified mm-hmm. uh in in basically common slave labor is this is the other story that comes from the midrash tra- tradition uh Nimrod was the guy who built the Tower of Babel, who ordered its construction. And he's also considered the first king mm-hmm. on, on all the earth. Right. Not only is he the first king, but he's the first king who demands the worship that was due to God. Okay. Um, so you'll, even in John Locke, you get this idea where he calls, um, he calls the Tower of Babel the first uh, commonwealth. Right? Yeah. It's, the, it's the institution right, no, of the first that. commonwealth. And you're like, what? John Locke. And especially when you're reading against the Jewish tradition, it's like, well, if that's the case, then commonwealths are very bad, <laughs> which is, I don't I don't believe was the point he was trying to make. So you have a king who deliberately sets himself up as a god, builds an idol, unifies all people um, in order to no longer need God. Why? Well, because now you have this king. So I, when we read the story, we don't often see this, you know, and, and but I think it's it's kind of integral to to the text to see this as viewed as something very evil. So yeah, in his division of men into nations, 
you see a kind of preliminary work of God to avoid that kind of unity by which men are united under a false God, united under a king who purports to be God. So that's the reason for God's dispersal um, and disruption of this particular plan. And when he establishes the nation of Israel or begins to speak in those terms, I mean, we can talk about this, but I see it as one step further. So he's already, the first remedial action was just to disrupt the plans of mankind. Well, now when he speaks to Abraham and says, I will make of you a mighty nation, um, it's a further remedial act whereby this particular nation, the nation of Israel, will will further prevent mankind from unifying under false gods. Um, right. But that's what we need to discuss. I would say it would be, well, what, what does that look like? Because if it's true, if the nation of Israel is sort of an anti-nation in right. the sense of it, it's designed by God to disrupt. Yeah, it's the, like the undoing of the nations. Right, right. Nations, if we consider them as a, a unity under a false god. Right. Right. So that's kind of the first problem if you will that, that needs to be spoken of but but if that's the case then this defense of nationalism because israel is a nation because god clearly uses the term nation um it's silly it's not it, it doesn't well, there's make, a number of problems with it right but the big one would one be like, is one is just a, a, a equivocation on the word on words well sure but mm-hmm. anyway even if we, even if we don't go there even if we allow the word nation to carry through just for argument's sake. Yeah. yeah. Then we then we get the theological problem. Where I think it comes down to this. Is Israel a nation like unto other nations, so that by using it you can justify a world of nations? Or is it unique? It's the light of the nations, isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's for the nations. Right. And mm-hmm. what's it for? It's for the reunification of the nations. I'm I'm every time I go back to it, I'm shocked, I'm surprised by how often Israel or the actions of Israel are are explicitly referred to as being for the nations that are around it. Right. And this is full of like the Exodus story, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is for the Egyptians in a sense. Right. Or like when God first speaks to Abraham, he says that people will bless, the nations will bless themselves by you. By you. Yeah. A nation is going to be used to reunite the nations. That's ultimately what we see at Pentecost, isn't it? Exactly. The undoing of Babel in reverse. Because, but it's different, right? So in Babel, the, the, the thing, this is like the kind of like happy fault idea, right? So the way in which the reunification happens is not by just an undoing of the fault, but a surpassing of the fault, right? Mm-hmm. So the, if Babel is the division into languages at Pentecost, it's the reunification, but it's not the reunification by everyone now speaking the mm-hmm. same language. It's now that the nations as, as cultural distinct units are united under a greater unit point of unity, which is the church, but they lose their their absoluteness. They lose their self sufficiency, mm-hmm. right? They're not the beginning or the end. They're just someplace in the middle now. You right. happen to speak this language, and I suppose in Revelation, when you see that when John's in John's vision, he sees people from all nations, right, worshiping God, worshiping the Lamb. You have this a, a complete inversion again, where it's not entire peoples being saved, but some from all nations being there, and then they find the new point of unity. Yeah, right. Or even Saint Augustine when he when he talks about how the church doesn't scruple about language and custom and all this, and a lot of people will read this as a sort of affirmation that the church has nothing to do with with the nations. And it's like, oh no, it's quite the quite the opposite. Oh, what, what's being said is that the, na- the 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 national forms are what constitute the church, right? Like like na- people from nations form unite together to form this 
the supranational unity, which yeah. is the church. Yeah. Right. So, so this is a, I think this is just a fundamental undermining of the very notion of nationalism. The fundamental unit is not the nation. Then what to say to someone who's going to argue, all right, well, sure, all the nations are kind of teleologically orientated towards ending up in the church. Um, that even even admitting that um, the nations find their end in surpassing themselves, right? right? Well, well, why not simply make the argument, well, therefore, we should all be nationalists now, right, as an orientation towards an eschaton, towards an Because a, a there's, I'll, give you, I'll give you a couple of reasons. One is I think you're right very much about your biblical reading about the nation as being about uh, a state, state power. And so part of what's restored in the old and the new law is not just the, it, the larger scale unity, but the smaller scale um, solidarity. Right? So, like, so, for example, uh, what's wrong about a nation is not merely that it rejects the universal, it's that it suppresses the local. Mm -hmm. right? And part of what's restored in the new law is the ability for people to live in community peacefully. I don't have any problem with the idea that there is um, a group of people who speak French. And if we want to call that uh, the French nation, okay. But it, we got to fit it within the hierarchy of, of human society where it's just one level within the hierarchy and there are smaller levels and there's larger ones. Mm -hmm. And the French one is not particularly what, why, why is that the one that is of a particular importance? Right. Yeah. So right. I, I, I'm a Christian who happens to live in, uh, my particular neighborhood, Brady Estates in Stupenville, Ohio. Right. And oh yeah, that's in America. Right. And so that it's not it's not like the America doesn't matter. Making that level of social order, that sort of that level of size, that scope, the primary one, necessarily does violence to the smaller ones. Like the nations form biblically as slave states under God kings. Mm -hmm. Oh man. And if you are going to have a state a nation state that that's the primary social organization that's what you that's what you must build right so so the very fact of the disorder right by placing a level uh outside of its proper place in the hierarchy right is integral to it also becoming disordered in its in its nature so becoming instead of a good social organization one that is organized under uh as slaves under a god king. I mean, I think nationalism is paganism, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> to go back to our my question, then, I think you've answered it by saying that the reason why we can't simply have our unchecked nationalism incorporated up into our Christianity is because the fundamental concepts of, of belonging to a nation need to undergo a conversion and a transformation in Christ. That's right. In order to be amenable to actually being a well-ordered part of the scheme of salvation. Right. And so it seems like the real problem of salvation is not positing nations. It's not saying, hey, isn't it great that we're American, that we belong to a, a large group of people that all speak the same language and live in roughly the same place or anything like that. Right. That's great. Um, the, the problem is that those concepts cannot be perverted by idolatry by the idea that this this belonging somehow receives a supreme importance over all other forms of belonging right because what happens is i think that in the restoration of the social hierarchy in the new law each level has its own sort of domain mm -hmm. but it's always opening up to what is higher than it and dependent upon 
upon what's higher for this fulfillment of its own nature, mm -hmm. right? So the family is not self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. In order for the family, in order for the function of the family, it must be a member of a city, right? It needs the city to, but the city can't perform the function of the family, mm -hmm. right? If the city government comes and takes all the children and puts them in an orphanage, that's a degradation of the hierarchy, right? And that, and that goes all the way up. And when you get to the nation level, it, it, that is true of the church internationally, right? Or higher, right? Like the, the nation must not be, view itself as closed in on itself, mm -hmm. as sovereign, as capable of, of somehow separated from justice in the abstract. Mm -hmm. Its actions are subordinate to the universal notions of justice, of peace, these things which are ultimately judged by the highest power, which is the, the, the church. I mean, that's, that's antithetical to the notion of nationalism. Right. right. Well, like as soon as you introduce the idea of some sort of international power by which the nation is judged, right. you're no longer a nationalist. Well, that's that's a good point. But even still, you have a another problem haunting that organization, and you got at that by talking about the European Jews before uh, before they had the nation of it, they went back to Israel. Right. Right. Uh, historic Palestine. And, and uh, that's that they were still obeying uh, a law outside of themselves that grouped together. And for them, it's a religious. I mean, it's, it's it, it, in their mind, it's their unity with God. It's a little bit uh, in parallel with if we start waving a Vatican flag around. You know, but there's still a perversion of us doing that mm -hmm. insofar as we start to think of uh the Vatican State is sovereign, right? Or even insofar as uh, no, it's right. It's not just a higher. It's not just a larger state. Yeah, exactly. well, I mean that's the it's thing. Something categorically, it's like a family yeah. is not just a small city, mm -hmm. right? And a, and a city is not just a small national level government. They're not. I mean, they're, they're categorically distinct. They're qualitatively distinct, right. Right. and they require. This is the, the, the. This is the foundation of the principle of subsidiarity. Right? It's not some sort of silly libertarian policy recommendation so the free market has room to work. Right? It's about it's about fundamental anthropology, right? So that you have you you have different different forms of social interaction at different levels. They're interrelated dynamically and require each other for the common good, which is the fulfillment of all of them. So the national level is just is one within that. If we even if we really even I, I mean I'm suspicious of it as a sort of natural form. Sure. Mm -hmm. At all, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I th that goes back to the original question about whether or not we're equivocating on words, because the yeah. modern nation is the creation of modern politics. I mean, I, I think, right? Yeah, it's I mean, one I, of these things where it's if you invent a table, life doesn't change all that much, and even though you're, it's still in the category of an artifact. The state is absolutely reforms every aspect of life. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think it's natural that people in LA. And people in New York are the same nation. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, things of that scale are empires. Mm -hmm. Well, and when, right, and, and the reason it becomes a nation is through is through the creation of a, a certain type of state. But even I mean, we're kind of getting at the idea the idea of a, of a of a nation being imperial. Yeah, they're imperial internally. Well, I mean, this is what you said already, right? That they're constructed in and through the suppression of diversity and local difference. So right. that right now we think of it as like, oh, this this thing nation is over these differences. But what in fact means is like 
so long as we continue to suppress these differences, we still have a nation. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I want to ask this because a lot of people today would gladly refer to themselves as a liberal and as a nationalist. Yeah, that's no, what happens they, to liberalism and socialism. They become nationalist. They Historically. become nationalist. Yeah. It, it, sure. It, but it also seems contradictory. Yeah, it is. Okay. In the ideal, liberalism is a universal rationalist ideology, right? Like mm -hmm. there would be no borders. This sort of national cultural identity becomes meaningless. It's just the free flow of goods and people for the most efficient allocation of resources, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, 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 this is the reason why really consistent libertarians want open borders and all this kind of stuff, right? But that changes in the 19th century because what the liberals, I think, realize is that that's never going to rally the masses. Like you can't hold power with that. You can't, you can't affect it. Like what the masses, the, what, what replaces Christianity in the masses is nationalism in Europe. Like you can become the case that we're Englishmen and part of what it means to be English is that we have the rights of Englishmen and that we're liberals. Mm -hmm. And then people will become liberals. Mm -hmm. But that's because they're English, yeah. right? Not because they're ideological liberals. Mm -hmm. Socialism takes on the same form. I mean, when you get, when socialism actually comes into power, it only comes into power as a nationalist movement. So like the, the Russian communists tried to not be nationalists very, very briefly, and that was impossible. You got socialism in one nation, and it becomes, it becomes a Russian thing to be communist, right? Hmm. And that becomes the power of the international communist movement is, is Russian nationalism. So, I mean, I think what's happening there is that it's a movement away from the ideological phase in the 19th century where there's consistent uh, intellectual ide ideologies towards, which are really Christian heresies, towards uh, a, a resurgent paganism, right? Where really our loyalties are to this mystical kind of religious thing, which is the nation. Mm -hmm. That's what we are. And then we have all the sort of ideological baggage that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. But I think that's really the first world war and, and after is where that where, yeah. that, where that becomes the, the dominant paradigm. You know, so um, the stats of people who stopped going to church in the 19th century is, is rather staggering. I mean, mm -hmm. I suppose that goes along with being overworked and all the rest of it, but also just having God sucked out of society. Yeah, which is exactly what society. the Pope say would have. I mean, you can see it in like Victorian literature, like this shift from... Um, Christianity being any form of identity to it being like what a good English gentleman believes. Yeah, like a good Christian. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you would do the turn of phrase, you know, like it just means like being a decent, being normal, being like a decent gentleman. Right. Yeah. It's being a decent gentleman in, in <laughs> England. It's, it's caught up into the American ideal as well, yeah. you know, big time, especially post World War II, so which is it, a different topic. And that is something I want to ask you about, Andrew, because 1930s, you have something like 20% of the population went to the church in America. Depending, yeah. Maybe maybe 30s. Maybe, maybe low 30s. Maybe percent. low 30s. It, so by the time, right after the war, 1950s, you have some... Almost some double that. Yeah. Double. About 60% or so, right? Yeah, yeah. So would, do you attribute that strictly to a nationalist, a nationalist affair? Wow, yeah. I mean, what I think is that fighting the war, I think people grossly underestimate the effect of the war, World War II. On, on American politics and Amer the world, strangely, even though it's such a monument. So I think that in order to fight that war, part of the ideology of the wet, of the allies was the forces of goodness, of truth, of home and hearth, of good Christian values against 
the atheist uh pig i mean first the fascist the kind of like murderous fascist fascist barbarians mm. and then right after that into the cold war against the atheist communists and so being a good churchgoer was an aspect of what it meant to be a good american right to be a good respectable american that made the war worth it right like that's why we went and fought that war and we come home and we're gonna we you know and so you get the revive the, the sort of revival of of Christianity, but it's a different thing now. It's no longer Christianity is no longer uh, a civilization making thing. It is a aspect of a nationalist identity, hmm. right? So in the same in the so, so you, you look at those stats. Membership in all the fraternal lodges go up at the same rate. Hmm. Membership in the political parties go up at the same rate. So going to church is no different than being a member of the Lions or being a good Republican. Wow. Right? I mean, that they, these are, these track each other. Right. And, and exactly. And in the same respect, you see it in the decline that follows. Well, then it collapses in the 60s. All, and all the fraternal lodges. It all collapses. Into, you can put all these charts right on top of each other. It's the same movement. Yeah. Like everyone laments the fall of Christianity as if the 50s is some sort of uh, some sort of uh, ideal period. And then you have Vatican II. And this is way off topic, but you have Vatican II and Vatican II then causes this collapse. But if you if you if you track the actual numbers, it's like, well, every social organization collapses in the same period. Mm -hmm. The church, the, the church is just one of any number. And, and that's because what it's happening, of course, is prior to this, prior to the 60s. The church has been be, has already been subordinated to be just another social organization. Wow, you know, so that I mean, that's what's happening there. So yeah, it's already become it's already been usurped by by nationalism, right? And so this in, we're in an interesting age then, and that there's many Christians that seem to think that a return they want to, return to, to nationalism, the 70s, right? The post war situation, which would essentially save Catholicism, but by this argument, it would be. It's precisely the problem. <laughs> you know, this is the reason why it became possible to elect John F. Kennedy, right? Hmm. Because it was like exactly what it was, was that Catholicism was no longer a force, a right. social force. Right. Catholicism was merely an aspect of being an American. Right. right. You know, once, it, once people believed that Catholicism was just a, sub, a subcategory within American, mm -hmm. being American, then you can elect a Catholic president. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, John Locke is right about Catholicism. Yeah. Right. Like if it's not subordinate to the nation, if it is, in fact, a loyalty to an international thing, well, then you can't have a right. Catholic president. Foreign princes. Yeah. <laughs> I, right. I mean, like they're right. Of course, you know, the anti-Catholics are right. Christ speaks about the nations. I, I think that this doesn't have to be, honestly, this kind of opposition to a at least unnuanced nationalism, call it that, um, doesn't have to be it on the basic uh, on the basis of this kind of historical critique. All right. Because first of all historical critique really isn't available to everyone um it, it takes some time and it takes some expertise it seems to me this is already in the new testament this critique of the nation in such a way that anyone who's a christian and as such trying to follow the words of christ could find a basic roadmap for themselves um that shows the Christian uh, kind of building of the kingdom of heaven as being something that just doesn't fit with this um, project of nationalism. One of the places I see this most clearly is in Christ's words when he says, um, he says, you know that the rulers of the nations lorded over them, but mm -hmm. it shall not be so with you. Rather, who would be um, the greatest shall be the least and the servant of all. 
and he talks about um and so what he what, what it seems to me that christ reveals in this distinction of how the nations work versus how you will work mm-hmm. um it, it seems to be saying that there is another order that's possible right we don't this isn't necessary to, to work in this manner. But it's also a revealing of what nations are that concords with the uh, Old Testament Old reading. Testament reading, right. Mm-hmm. What Perfect. is a nation? Well, I'll tell you what a nation is. A nation is many people who have subordinated themselves under the rule of one, mm-hmm. right? And now we might talk about who that one is in different ways with our modern, modern nations. But Christ seems to say fundamentally that what's different is that those who are leaders, those who rule, um, don't do so by the subordination of local difference, of all difference, of, of any th- other, uh, anything other than that rule. Rather, it's precisely through service uh, that you have a different form of social order. Exactly. That's right. possible. And I think it gets tough because when you have nation as such a strong category, you might look at a social order wherein the strong exist to serve the weak, wherein the rulers um, keep the hierarchy uh, of subsidiarity and actually s- actively support the family, not by right. subordinating them, but actually letting the family be the family, letting the city be the city. You might see this and say, well, that's a nation because I think all we often mean by it is it's a large group of people that are ordered in some way. And that I think is fine. Use the right. term, fine. use the term. But when you read the New Testament, at least it seems like Christ is saying there is a difference. There are two ways of living. Mm-hmm. And you should not choose the way that, at least for Christ, he calls nations. The way of the nations. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Which passage are you looking at here? Oh, I didn't find it. Sorry. I was just I flipping through. It's Luke. Seven, yeah, it? it's got to be Luke. Yeah. Luke is is not a nationalist. I mean, Christ is doing this constantly where he says um, the Gentiles, ethnos, the nation, mm-hmm. they work this way. Not you. You're going to work this, this way. way. Right. And when you read it at first, I've always been taught like, well, he's just distinguishing like good living versus bad living. Like, you know, sinners do this or sinners do that, but you should not be a sinner. It's it doesn't, that's actually not true. It seems like his emphasis is always on the nations, the, the, the social order that he calls nations do do this. Right. Um, so one of the places, so it's not that they're not sinners. It's that sinners are organized this way. Right. Precisely. Yeah. 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 But it's not like a kind of, uh, individual self-help. Like right. here's how yeah. to better your individual life. Is yeah, exactly. No, he's talking about here's how to develop a social order that eventually will be called the kingdom of heaven. Or that, that's what we refer to it as. And one of the places where this is apparent again, is he says using the same dichotomy, he says that, um, you shouldn't go to civil courts when you have problems. Right. That in fact, you should make friends with uh, whoever you're in enmity with um, on your way to the judge. Why? Well, if you, it's very practical. He says, if you don't, well, the judge is going to throw you in prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll stink. <laughs> um, and so you can read that. If you just read that on the face of it as like life advice, it's very, I find it it's, doesn't do justice to Christ. It kind of is trite. It's like, well, you don't want to go to prison. Don't go to court. But when you take it in terms of describing two different social orders, what he's describing is one order, the way of the nations, which solves all violence, all conflict between people by an appeal to its highest the authority. Power, right? right? Because the civil courts at the time that Jesus is speaking, stop me if I'm wrong here, they're Roman courts. Mm. Oh, at this point, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not simply, there's a real emphasis on avoid the lack of order mm-hmm. which would build up a kind of idolatrous social order o- o- avoid that 
um, appeal to a kind of sovereignty in man, right? Instead, you fully have the capacity to create peace right. within the smaller social orders that you already existed. I mean, families know this. We know that like if my son disobeys a rule, I don't call the cops on him, right? right? There's no need uh, because the family is a good in itself. Right, open to everything else, but still has its own order that can be. So um, yeah, why wouldn't that principle hold to the neighborhood? Right, the neighborhood, and then the city, and not. Right. And again, it doesn't deny the possibility that there is a higher than the city national. Absolutely right. Um, it just puts things in the right in their right place. The tranquility of order is Saint Augustine. <laughs> right, right, and it seems to me. <laughs> it seems to me that again and again in all these examples. Christ is saying there's two ways to live. One of them involves a social order where you put man at the top and then appeal to him for all justice and peace and therefore treat him as God. The other social order, you don't put man at top, therefore you don't have that to appeal to and treat as God. Rather, you have to become peaceful people amongst yourself. You have to be virtuous. You have to actually be good to each other. And uh, here are here are here is the gospel teaching and the grace necessary to do that. Well, right, exactly. So, so that's the second shoe. G- yeah, of course. Jesus is not just like my advice guru. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, he, by becoming Christian, uh, he actually gives us the condition of possibility by which we right. can be peaceful amongst each other. Right. Like, how would we ever forgive unless we were first forgiven by him? Exactly. You know, like um, so. The further that we so so it makes sense in, in a from a really broad view, that the further we come from Christ in, in our modern age, the more intuitively and naturally we seem to build up nation states of and course. become nationalists. Because it's precisely what to do when you don't have God at the top of your social order and when instead you put man It's there. what we've done in the past and yeah. when we when we abandon Christ is what we'll do again. Yeah. Okay. Right. So here it is, Luke 12. I had it wrong earlier. But when Christ says... Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be of anxious mind. For all the nations of the world seek these things. Your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things shall be yours as well. That's awesome. I could go off on that verse. Do it. Again, if you just read it as life advice, there's something missing. It sounds trite, right? What's God saying? Don't worry. Yeah. Right. So when you read it as psychological help, it's like, like one of those one of those like self helpy magazines at the grocery store checkout right, that's right. about like mindfulness. Yeah, exactly. It's like, do you find yourself stressed? Hey, have you thought about not being stressed? <laughs> just don't stress about it. But that gets completely thrown off the rails. You just can't make that analysis. Um, the moment he says, "All the nations of the world do this," right? Because what he's saying is the social orders of this world are constructed on anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right. It's Fear. not that there's people that are anxious. Don't be that person. It's that order. Com- a certain kind of order comes from anxiety. There's a, it constitutes peoples in a certain way. And to my mind, this is the most obvious thing in the world, that when you are ordered by fear, then what you're going to do is naturally turn to whoever can save you from what you're afraid of. Right. And this right? is just Hobbes. It is Hobbes, but I'm not saying that yet. Okay. <laughs> so what does is, what is Jesus say? He says, well, okay, you're worried about what to eat and, and what to wear, what to drink, shelter, these sort of things. Um, so if you are ordering yourself on this basis, then what you will do is very natural. You will find the person who can provide you with salvation from these fears, this salvation from scarcity, um, 
and you will essentially anoint him as king over you. Because later, when he says that the um, that the uh, nations of the world have have rulers that lord it over them, right. he also says he says this very crucial part. And the people think of them as benefactors, or they call this lordship beneficence. Right. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they are when we're scared and we want to form a social order on the basis of fear, we subordinate ourselves to a ruler because he appears as a benefactor, because he provides these goods, right? So it's in, in one way, it makes total sense if you don't trust God. Right, yeah. Because if or you if trust you God believe, yeah. to provide, then there's no need to make man God. I mean, this goes right back to the Tower of Babel. If you believed that God would take care of you, there was no need to organize mankind into a central power to make a name for yourself on earth. God will give you a name. Right. Don't, why would you worry about that? So when Christ comes, he says, if you truly believed that God provides you with something to eat. And I mean this very practically. I mean, like, actually that God will give your family food. Like, actually that God will look after you. And turn, like, if we really believed what Christ tells us to believe, then the idea of of subordinating our wills to a central authority among man that would provide that for us would appear ridiculous. Right. But that's the difference, right? This is this fundamental difference. There's there's anxiety on the one hand, which leads to the creation of a certain type of social order. But if you can have, if you can, you can lose that anxiety by trusting in God, then the social order that results is very different, right? Right. Because then those things that we need um, come from God, and not simply from God, but from His church. So in the sense that all of us unified by obeying the law that God gives us and by our relation with him and community with the saints, that there, there are ways in which we will feed each other, in which we will clothe each other, in which we will shelter each other, in which this will all come from God and through his church uh, in a way that doesn't require us to subordinate our wills to a central power. Yeah. And, and this, I, mean, I, I mean, I just think that's wonderful, Mark. And I think what you're getting at there or one of the aspects of what you're getting at is, is something that's missed even among Christian thinkers who we interact with, mm. that which is that the form, the social form, the form of, of the social order is not independent of the ends after which it strives, mm. right? So it's not as if we have this thing called the state or this thing called government, and it's just sort of neutral mechanism. Yeah. And then the question is, well, what ends should it achieve, go after? Should it, should, it, should it pursue our supernatural end and therefore become a sort of integral state, integralist state? Mm -hmm. Or should it pursue our material end and become a sort of liberal state? Or should it, it's like, no, the, the, the form, the, the regime itself is constant is in part constituted by the ends after which it is it is pursued the ends it's pursuing mm -hmm. right so pursuing different ends results in a different social order yeah uh, and that, that's a fundamental a fundamental concept i think it's in augustine in in the city of god about the loves absolutely and, yeah. and what loves are pursued and then the form that comes out of that the love of glory produces the roman empire yeah, yeah. different loves produce different regimes mm -hmm. and, and you have to question also what the legitimate, the, the true loves are of a nation. So for an integral state, if, if it is such control, is it really the beatific vision that it is striving after? Or is it, is, or is it something else? Is it, is it power? Is it, is it just power? Yeah. It's this fiction that tools are neutral. Right? Mm -hmm. Artifacts are neutral. Right. When they're not, they're created for particular functions. Right. Yeah. The form, and we might be able to use them for something outside of their particular function, but only within a certain range. It's just like what we were talking about at the beginning of this series with, with constructing a temple. Right. It has to be constructed in, in a particular way. A steel mill has to be 
constructed in, in a particular way. The actual the form of the building and its function are not divorced. It we can't, build it, can't it in a we build it in a certain way for a certain thing. Right. Right. In, in a way, I think this is actually the reason why we fear it, because if it's true, it means that we have to become good. Like our actual goals have to really be God. Right. Our trust can't has to actually be a trust in divine providence, mm-hmm. right. because if you try to just have a system. A, a rule that attains those for you without the actual conversion of hearts, then you end up faking it and you end up building a system where really what you're getting is, is man, you know, you, the provision comes from man. So what, it, what this does, it seems to me that this idea that if you want the kingdom of heaven, your actual goals have to be heaven. <laughs> right. Um, then what it, it throws the, um, puts the ball in the court of Christians. Mm-hmm. And says, look, you can't fake this. You can't develop a political system that will attain these goods without being Christian. Right. Yeah, and I think, right. unfortunately, I think this is what animates a lot of political discussion, right? How do we build up a system that will take care of people irrespective of what they believe and how they act? Right. Right. We want something that's just going to save us apart from work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. But what this does All is the will work. achieve it. Yeah. Right. Precisely. Yeah. Whereas what Christ says, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. He's really saying like, we all have to seek the kingdom of yeah. God in order to have this. Uh, well, the next line is all these things shall be added unto you. What? Well, material goods, shelter, yeah. food, abundance. abundance. Yeah. Peace. If you want Freedom. it. Yeah. If you want it, be Christian. That's, mm-hmm. that's what he says. If you want it, be good. Um, and it's I just don't think people believe it. Oh, I don't. We have turned all that into we we we've we've ripped it out of its real context and turned it all into analogies for um like mental well-being, mm-hmm. therapy. Oh, it's very, like when we say yeah. freedom, we don't actually mean freedom. We mean like freedom from attachment. We can start sounding like we're propo- a proponent of like a prosperity gospel or something. Mm-hmm. Um but what's different here is that we all we all look around and see that we're capable of amazing material wealth of producing it. Mm-hmm. What's driving us? What's motivating us? It's like, well, why, why in the world wouldn't, wouldn't we, if we were motivated by truth and justice and goodness, why wouldn't we be able to provide for our material needs in why, why would that equal less, less the, like a, a decreased ability to produce, to provide for our material needs. Mm-hmm. Right, it might it might lead to us producing less mm-hmm. because we have a better scale of values. Oh, I mean, totally. it almost certainly would. Yeah, but the idea that in becoming good, virtuous, moral people and trusting in God, it's not merely that then then food would be like a miracle. I think it would be that we are actually yeah. become better at producing for ourselves. Right. Yeah, the miracle is what's happening. Better at judging what is a good application of our work, what is a good scale yeah. of values for, for us to work, cooperate. How do we cooperate? I find that when I, when I talk in this manner with people, when I say, look, we really need to trust in God to provide us with goods insofar as we're seeking his, his kingdom, it's like immediately this facade of Christianity drops and everyone says, oh, well, that would be irresponsible. Like, like yeah that, that sounds yeah. nice that sounds nice but you know the real world you know yeah. you work your job you make as much money as you can and save it so that you never run into any catastrophes yeah, so couched under a, a false understanding of prudence what it what it shows is where who the god really is yeah, yeah because absolutely the, the, you have to ask the question well if 
if there's something hypocritical about modern Christianity, what's the point at which it gives? And they say, forget the God of Abraham, go after this, this God, right? If there really is a false God. And I find time and time again, it's this, it's this question of fear Mm -hmm. that if you talk with someone about what scares them, they only on this like psychological level of self-help, do they really say, well, you trust in God. Um, what it really comes down to is, um, you need need money, you need more money. Right. Uh, And that happened consistently. Like, like I I find that constantly in the classroom. Oh, I mean like (laughs) where, where like we can talk all this social doctrine stuff. And as soon as any of this starts, starts pointing at savings, 401ks, retirements, investments, all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're in dangerous ground. Like all of a sudden, all the receptive faces start looking uh, scared. Yeah. Like, where where is this conversation going? (laughs) Right. Right. They shouldn't be that scared. They're in undergraduate. They're probably leaving $100,000 in debt. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But And it's not even that I'm about to say something that's earth-shatteringly revolutionary. It just is you can start to perceive that this is the actual pressure point. Yeah. Well, and, and it makes it, I mean, you again, know? tying it back to the discussions on, on liberalism, which includes the discussions <laughs> how you can't really divorce nationalism from either a socialism or, or a liberalism. Right. And, and liberalism and capitalism are, are integral to one another yeah. as, as well. It's that we, we forget just how radical the break is between worship of God and worship of mammon. They're, right. they're, they're different roots systems that lead to two different lives. Um, well, in America, that becomes and, particularly problematic because of what we talked about earlier about the post-war situation, because part of the reason why we're good church-going Christians is because we're anti-communists. Right. And the communists, and that means we're good capitalists. Right. Exactly. Right. And so and so you people who are whose notion of Christianity is that kind of 1950s, early 60s, post-war situation. Mm-hmm. They are associating my good Christianity is is goes hand in hand with my good capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And you can't if you start suggesting that those are in conflict, then they, they figure you're pushing some sort of an anti-American agenda. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Which in a sense you are. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. You know, the root of mammon in, in Aramaic is the same root as amen from I trust, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really what, what is that God that we're trusting in? And, and that's how we come back to this understanding of nationalism as, as a true ideology, that there is a holistic system in which you can answer all these questions. It's, yeah. uh, it kind of seems basic at, at one level because we look at the flag and think that's nationalism. But we forget just how far those tentacles extend into the nooks and crannies of our lives exactly and, and right. indeed our souls. Indeed. So next time. We're finally getting to the social encyclicals, but we are now laid the foundations of these ideologies. So we can understand what what Leo the Thirteenth is talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a bit impossible without it. Right. Great. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Jim.